our Father. How do we put together sentences that are worthy enough to be received by you? Our prayers always fall short. We give you imperfect sentences from imperfect hearts. The glory due your name cannot possibly be received from this prayer. Unless, unless this corporate prayer is clothed in the righteousness of Christ, then it doesn't fall short. Then it's gladly received by you. Then it does give you the glory due your name. We come to you, Father, in Jesus' name. We come to you in Jesus' work on the cross. We come to you, Father, in Jesus' perfection. Nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to his cross we cling. Now we have standing. Now we have your ear. Now we make our request. God, we need you. I need you. And delivering this text, I need you. In one sense, I don't want the sermon study to come easy. I don't want the sermon writing to come quickly. I don't want the sermon delivery to be silky smooth. I don't want this to be form and routine for me, where I'm just pumping out sermons week after week, and I have, I have no interest in being the sermonator, where it begins to come easy and I lose dependence on you. So thank you for the struggle, because it keeps reminding me this is more than flesh and blood. This is spirit and word. I lift before you my flock. These people before whom I stand week after week and deliver your word. These people with whom I live week after week in the trenches. Father, these are precious people. People to whom I will stand before you and give an account. Will you enable them to adore the Christ I hold out to them? That I will preach him beautifully and they will see him as beautiful. We are in a narrative today. Will you help the flock to be transported into the story? To be like they are experiencing it in living color. That it would not be cold, dead history, but invigorating, alive action. That they aren't watching the action, they are in it. On my best day, I can't produce this. If the Spirit doesn't show up, nothing profitable takes place here. Come Holy Spirit and work in tandem with your word. It is not lost on us that Satan is involved in the preaching event. Your son Jesus told us this. In parabolic form, he said, in some cases when the seed is laid down, immediately the birds come and take it away. We are entering spiritual warfare. I'm about to lay out the seed. Will you protect it? Will you help it to find good ground? Will you help it to produce fruit? Some 30-fold, some 60-fold, and some 100-fold. Your word to your people is my glorious privilege now. Amen. I have a friend whose dad died in his arms. He had a heart attack. It was just the two of them. He held his dad while his dad died. They shared some last words. He tells me about this event from time to time, each time revealing a little more. He just said, I love you, Dad. It's okay. I'm here, Dad. If this is it, I love you and I will tell the family you love them and I will tell them, Dad, you died well. You died in faith. He heard his dad's last words. The last thing his dad saw was his son. That's also what we have in our text. A father dying in the arms of his son. The father, the great King David. The son, the 20-year-old King Solomon. 
David had in the first chapter avoided a coup and installed Solomon as co-king. We are not sure of the gap of time between chapter 1 and chapter 2. It could have been less than a year, maybe a month, maybe a week. But for a time they were co-kings. And today the transition takes place. The transition where the kingdom leaves the hands of David and is placed in the hands of Solomon. We've got quite a narrative before us. It's an emotional roller coaster. There's a death. There's some last words. There's a hit list. There's a marriage proposal. A mother-son talk. Someone being placed under house arrest. Then a parole violation. Then someone killed in the church pew. Wild ride for us this morning. There are two movements in the story. A father dying in the hands of his son, verses 1 through 11. A kingdom being established in the hands of the son, verses 12 through 46. A father dying in the hands of his son, verses 1 through 11. A kingdom being established in the hands of the son, the remaining verses. We will begin with the father dying in the hands of his son, verse 1. For when David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, Church, let's pause here. This is David's deathbed speech. He senses his imminent death. He calls for his son. He wants, he desires to die in the arms of his son. He desires to leave his son with some last words. Last words are lasting words. It seems to be just the two of them in the room. King David gives King Solomon end-life directives. He's transferring leadership. When Solomon approaches, David begins to speak. It's time for David to die. and It's time for Solomon to listen. His final charge consists of spiritual directives and political directives. First, spiritual directives, verse 2. I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. In other words, I'm about to be eaten by worms. I'm about to go six feet under. I'm about to close my eyes in death. But you, be strong. Show what you're made of. Show some spine. Man up. This kingdom will not lead itself. You need to be strong when others are weak. This is the time. Time for the little boy to sit down and time for the man to stand up. By the way, church, these are the same words spoken by Moses to Joshua just before Moses died. And they're the same words spoken by Joshua to the Israelites before he died. The, the dying words of many have helped men lead when they are weak. Verse 3, and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. This is a, a Deuteronomistic charge. Son, live out Deuteronomy's vision of the ideal king. David has Bible on his lips as he dies. Quoting and alluding to Deuteronomy over and over. How this must have influenced his son. I want to die with scripture on my lips. Keep the Mosaic contract, son. Walk in his ways, keep his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies. This may sound like an impossible burden. Keep the covenant, adhere to God's standards. But it was the desire of Solomon's heart. For Solomon, there are benefits to obeying God's word. Security and blessing. Coughing up a lung, David yokes together obedience and blessing. Would you stop and think for a moment? If you were on your deathbed, 
You only have minutes left. You give your child some last words. Would you say, now listen, I want you to make sure you get a college degree, graduate at the top of your class, find a well-paying job, live in a nice neighborhood, keep the grass mowed, brush your teeth, comb your hair, wear deodorant. <laughs> How temporary! While all these little lessons are fine, they all miss the purpose of life. David doesn't miss it. Hold fast to God's word. David uses seven different terms to describe the word of God. Hold fast to the ways, the statues, the commandments, the testimonies, the charge, the rules, the law. Be a man. Be a Bible man. The Bible will guide you through life. Live by the book. Dying words can cut through mere trivialities and meaningless sentiment. David doesn't say, if you're going to make it, son, you need to refine the foreign policy agenda, brush up on your diplomacy, secure advantageous trade agreements, make powerful alliances. No. Obey the Bible. Live by the book. He died with God's Bible on his lips and he died with God's promises on his lips. Verse 4. That the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Grandpa David gives advice to his son Solomon concerning his grandchildren. Tell your sons to watch their steps. He's actually talking about Solomon's sons who will one day be king and his grandsons and great-great-grandsons and great-great-great-grandsons. David articulates the standard by which all other kings will be judged. They need to be covenant faithful kings. If they are, you will always have someone from the family of David ruling. David dies with God's promise to him on his lips. Quoting promises while breathing his last breath. God gave David this promise in 2 Samuel 7. God promised him a Davidic dynasty. Someone from your house will always rule. God gave it as an unconditional promise. David reads it here as a conditional promise. I guess it had elements of both in it. Ultimately, the unfaithfulness of Solomon or any king would not negate the promise to David. Their sin would not eliminate the dynasty. God made sure to keep the covenant himself by ensuring that David would have the kind of law-keeping royal son that the covenant demanded. I don't think the text is calling for this, but it's something on my mind. If your child isn't there when you die, why not write your last words in advance? A letter they read the day they find out you've died. Spiritual directives, now political directives. David doesn't want the new king to inherit old problems. We've been painted a loving, deep-rooted spiritual goodbye and it now turns to cold-blooded political maneuvering. That seems to be the move here. First half of David's dying words are so biblical, so positive. Now the second half is so murderous, so negative. Everything in this political directive is calculated. It's almost mafia-like. I need you to tie up some loose ends. We move now from a Deuteronomy list to a hit list. Verse 5. Moreover, you also know what Joab, the son of Zeruiah, did to me. How he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel. Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed. Avenging in time of 
apiece for blood that had been shed in war. And putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals of his feet. David directs Solomon, clean up the mess I made. Mess number one, Joab. Joab was David's nephew. He used to be his number two man. He led the army. But Joab became a turncoat during the latest coup and followed Adonijah. David reminds Solomon that Joab killed two men, Abner and Amasa. Abner made peace with David, but Joab lured him to a dark place and thrust a sword into his belly. Amasa thought they were having a friendly conversation when Joab grabbed him by the beard and plunged a dagger in his stomach. All of these events occurred back in 2 Samuel. Abner and Amasa were at peace with Joab at the time he struck them down. Both killings were premeditated and vengeful. Joab shed innocent blood in peacetime as it were wartime. He murdered them. Cold-blooded executions. Both men happened to be his professional rivals. He always held his personal interest over national interest. He was brutal in removing those who got in his way. Callous, ruthless. He nearly split the kingdom twice. He acted in peacetime like it was wartime. And his violent actions exasperated David. Joab doesn't only have blood on his hands, he has it on his belt and on his sandals. Verse 6, David says, Act therefore according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. Do not let him get, get off scot-free. Make him pay. Don't let him die peacefully. Don't let him die of old age. He's too dangerous to live. David, during this Joab time, did show strange inactivity. David should have dealt with Joab back then, previously, years before. For some reason, he decided not to take immediate punitive action toward Joab. David tells Solomon, Joab will split tribes. He's too dangerous to let live in your united kingdom. I couldn't even control him. How are you going to do it? He will not be content with your kingship. David signs Joab's death warrant. Kill him. Verse 7. But deal loyally with the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For such loyalty they met they met me when I met when I fled from Absalom your brother. Before we get to mess number 2, David tells Solomon about someone on the gift list. There's a hit list, but also there's a gift list. When I die, hit these men, gift these men. Leave this man my four pickup. When David fled in the wilderness, from his son Absalom's rebellion, a really old man provided food and bedding for him. This man was near death then. He helped David through a tough time in life. David always remembered the old man. When David ascended to the throne, he invited the old man to come to Jerusalem and live out his years in ease, but the man refused. He said, I'm too old. His sons are living and David wants to make sure he honors the old man by taking care of his sons and their families. When I was running for my life, he was there for me. Extend every kindness to his sons. Solomon, he helped your old dad in my day of trouble. I may have starved in the wilderness if it wasn't for him. To eat at the king's table was the equivalent of having a pension. David wanted them to have a regular royal allowance of food and clothing and house and land. The hit list is for David's enemies. The gift list is for David's friends. That's the gift list. Back to the hit list, verse 8. 
And there is also with you Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Behurim, who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went from Mahanaim. But when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. David directs Solomon, clean up the mess I made. Mess number one, Joab. Mess number two, Shimei. While David fled from his son Absalom, he ran into Shimei. Shimei kicked David while he was down. He cursed him viciously. He threw stones at David as David left Jerusalem with his head hung low. David had not forgotten or forgiven the humiliating scene he endured at the hands of Shimei. Later, Shimei regretted he did all this and asked for forgiveness. David said he forgave him. But perhaps David didn't think his repentance was genuine. David promised he would never kill Shimei. But there is a loophole. His son Solomon could. Solomon isn't bound by the oath. Verse 9. Now therefore do not hold him guiltless. For you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do to him. And you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. David warned Solomon, he's a troublemaker. He's a potential problem. Don't acquit him. Don't leave this wrong unpunished. Solomon needs to clean up two messes. Joab and Shimei. They were skeletons in David's closet. They haunted him until the day he died. They were dodgy characters. David chose not to deal with certain messes in his life. He left it for his son to clean up after he's gone. This is Godfather-like, Mafia-like, telling your successor who is on the royal hit list, who to knock off. David is settling old scores. Both men caused David personal harm. David never revenged these men, never made them pay for their crimes. He never revenged, but he also never forgave. Let me ask you a question. Was David's hit list a sin? Is this merely personal vengeance that David's too cowardly to carry out himself? Was this a, another instance of oriental cruelty? I, I would love to have a hit list on my deathbed. I would. Hey, hey, son, make sure you have the gift list. Give this guy the Tacoma. My truck, I've had it for 16 years. It's going to outlive me. <laughs> Give this family all the books. Make sure you execute the gift list and the hit list. You know that guy said something obnoxious to me one time and he needs to die a slow, painful death. <laughs> this person tried to kick me while I was down. How about you set their house on fire? <laughs> what a man of God. What a way to go out. Was this the necessary elimination of internal threats in order to secure the kingdom? Are these political assassinations best for the nation's interest? Was it a sin for David to command this? He's different than us. He's protecting God's kingdom so Israel is not eliminated because God is sending a Messiah through Israel. I think both of these men, Joab and Shimei, were, were a danger to the dynasty. Their actions displayed a total disregard for God's kingdom. They represented an ongoing threat to the throne in Israel. Treacherous acts against God's kingdom must not be tolerated. Both Joab and Shimei had committed acts worthy of the death penalty. Modern Americans need to remember that ancient Semitic government prescribed the death penalty for many crimes that would not warrant the same treatment today. I'm not trying to salvage the reputation of any king. I'm not trying to exonerate David or Solomon for anything. I'm simply saying I think God was in these death warrants. 
these men became hostile toward God's king. Joab committed a double murder. He always abused his power. Both men were sure to revolt again in the future. I'm simply saying David and Solomon were charged to protect something we are not. When we die, we should go out in peace. Trusting God to bring retribution to all those who have wronged us. Now let's return back to the deathbed. David is lying in the arms of his son and there he dies. It's a tearful goodbye. Verse 10. Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. There's a huge funeral for David. The whole country in mourning. Israel's singer stopped singing. Israel's warrior stopped fighting. Israel's king stopped kinging. The nation remembers great King David. He's buried in Jerusalem. In the ancient world, the place of burial was significant, especially when it came to the burial of a king. He's buried in honor, in royal tombs. Israel's most beloved king went the way of all the earth. The one who wrote about walking in the valley of the shadow of death walked that valley with the sovereign. It's the end of an era. A good one. A father dying in the arms of his son. With his last words, he gave spiritual directives and political directives. He gave a Deuteronomy list and a hit list. The last words he spoke, spiritual directives, a Deuteronomy list, political directives, a hit list. And this leads us to a powerful truth. With David's last words, he gave a hit list. With Jesus' last words, he gave a salvation list. I read the life of great David and my heart screams... We need a better king than this. We need great David's greater son. David put people to death with his last words. Jesus gave people life with his last words. David said, they are finished. Jesus said, it is finished. David said, they must die to pay for their sins. Jesus said, I will die to pay for their sins. David was born in Bethlehem and buried in Jerusalem. Jesus was born in Bethlehem and buried in Jerusalem. David, Israel's best king, still dies. He went the way of all the earth. But another king went the way of all the earth and broke the cycle. He came up out of the earth. His dying words were not, Obey Deuteronomy perfectly. He knew you couldn't. His dying words were not, Clean up the mess I made. No, his dying words were, I'm cleaning up the mess you made. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus Christ died with a list in his hands. Not a hit list but a salvation list. He died for John 17, 9, for those the Father had given him. Ephesians 1, 4, for God chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Jesus had a list. He knew who he was dying for. He knew whose sins he was atoning for on the cross. It, it was a particular list. 
With David's last words, he gave a hit list. With Jesus' last words, he purchased a salvation list. A father dying in the hands of his, of his son, verses 1 through 11, a kingdom being established in the hands of the son. The remainder of the verses. There is a phrase repeated twice in this section. It sandwiches the section. But the same phrase is found in verse 12 and verse 46. Notice the phrase at the end of verse 12. So Solomon sat on the throne of David his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. Solomon's kingdom was firmly established. Then verse 46b, 46b, so the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. This is a kingdom being established in the hands of the son. Solomon gains a firm grip on the kingdom. This fulfills God's promise to David. Once Solomon came to the throne, he had to decide what to do with those who in chapter 1 plotted against his throne, the conspirators. Verse 13. Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, and she said, Do you come peacefully? He said, Peacefully. As David's death approached, there were two major players for succession, Solomon and Adonijah. You will remember from last week, Adonijah launched a coup to take the throne from Solomon. Solomon let him live, but said, if you ever make a grab for the throne again, you're a dead man. Adonijah is 35 years old. He goes to his, his stepmother, and they have a mother-son talk. Bathsheba is the mother of 20-year-old King Solomon. Adonijah was going to put Solomon and Bathsheba to death if he rose to the throne. Eliminate any claimants to the throne. That's why Bathsheba says, do you come in peace? Then he said, I, I have something to tell you. She said, speak, say on, I'm listening. Verse 15. He said, you know that the kingdom was mine and that all Israel fully expected me to reign. However, the kingdom has turned about and become my brother's. For it was his from the Lord. <laughs> the kingdom landed on my brother's lap. Well, I'm, I guess God placed it on his lap. Adonijah puts himself as the injured party. He's always the victim. Verse 16. And now I have one request to make of you. Do not refuse me. She said to him, speak. And he said, please ask King Solomon, he will not refuse you, to give me Abishag the Shunammite as my wife. Church, remember this lady? She is the beauty queen slash home nurse for David. Now that David is dead, I, I couldn't get his throne in death. What about his new wife? Give me the consolation prize. I no longer seek the crown, I only seek the wife. What a presumptuous and even audacious request. Adonijah is trying to be crafty. Not crafty in making a scrapbook, but crafty in making a sin book. Craftiness like the serpent in the garden. He's carefully concealed his true intentions. He's not abandoned his royal ambitions after all. He's manipulating the situation. Claiming the former king's harem was a common act of a new king. He had not yet relinquished the thought that he could become king himself. He makes a reckless play for the throne. Typically, marriage proposals don't look like this, but this is ancient Israel. Verse 18, Bathsheba said, very well, I will speak for you to the king. Bathsheba innocently agrees to be the go-between. Now, was she naive? Did she not see through Adonijah? She had to know this was a serpentine way to make a political grab for the throne. Did the implications of his request escape her? Verse 19. So Bathsheba went to King Solomon 
to speak to him on behalf of Adonijah. And the king rose to meet her and bowed down to her. Then he sat on his throne. Then he sat on his throne and had a seat brought for the king's mother. And she sat on his right. The, the, the queen mother commands great respect and influence. Verse 20. Then she said, I have one small request to make of you. Do not refuse me. And the king said to her, make your request, my mother, for I will not refuse you. She said, let Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah your brother as his wife. <laughs> king Solomon answered his mother, and why do you ask Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask for him the kingdom also, for he is my older brother, and on his side are Abiathar the priest and Joab the son of Zeruiah. Then King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, God, do so to me and more also, if this word does not cost Adonijah his life. Now therefore, as the Lord lives, who has established me and placed me on the throne of David my father, and who has made me a house as he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death today. <laughs> this is Solomon living out the plea of his dying father. He's being strong and showing himself a man. Solomon absolutely interpreted Adonijah's behavior as making a claim for the throne. He reads this simple request as a play for the kingdom. My mother is too naive to see it, too trusting, fell into Adonijah's trap. But I am not deceived for a moment. Solomon knew as long as Adonijah would live, he would connive and scheme and make attempts for the throne. He would forever attempt to dethrone God's king. Solomon says, I have been charged to keep, keep the kingdom and I intend to do it. Verse 25. So King Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he struck him down and he died. Which leads us to this application. You can, like Adonijah, desire sex and power more than you desire the kingdom of God. You can, like Adonijah, desire sex and power more than you desire the kingdom of God. Adonijah could not get the Shunammite woman off his mind. And he couldn't get the power that came with the throne out of his heart. Don't tell me you love the king and you are always trying to build your own kingdom. Always trying to make a name for yourself. Always trying to be seen. Always conniving, just like Adonijah. How can I get more followers? Those who are loyal to the king aren't interested in getting people to follow them. They want people to follow him. Don't tell me you love the king when you will not stop your immorality, your pornography, your perverted sexual escapades. See, the Shunammite girl will never satisfy you. Neither will the throne. You will not find true satisfaction until you submit to the king. You Adonijahs, you, you younger brother types, you think your sin is innocent. You think your activity isn't against the king. Friend, you become co-conspirators with Adonijah when you sin. Every sin is a conspiracy against the king of glory. Stop building your own kingdom and start building his. Once Solomon came to the throne, he had to decide what to do with those who in chapter 1 plotted against his throne, the conspirators. What would Solomon do with the plotters? Plotter number one, Adonijah, dead as a doornail. Plotter number two, Abiathar, verse 26. And Abiathar the priest... The king, and to Abiathar the priest, the king said, Go to Anathoth, to your estate, for you deserve death. But I will not at this time put you to death, because you carried the ark of the Lord God before David my father, and because you shared in all my father's affliction. So Solomon expelled Abiathar from being priest to the Lord, 
thus fulfilling the word of the Lord that had, had, that had been spoken concerning the house of Eli and Shiloh. Now, this refers to Samuel's judgment on Eli the priest way back in 1 Samuel. Abiathar is expelled to a village three miles northwest of Jerusalem. You deserve death, but you went through some battles with my father David, some spiritual battles, so I banish you, not kill you. The priest loses his job. He's replaced, removed from his priestly office and sent back in disgrace to his home village. This is the penalty for participating in Adonijah's rebellion. He's expelled, but not executed. It's a, a reprieve of execution. He's commuted to banishment. Which leads us to another application. You can, like Abiathar, rebel against God's kingdom while staying involved in religious activity. You can, like Abiathar, rebel against God's kingdom while staying involved in religious activity. If Adonijah was the younger brother type, then Abiathar is the older brother type. This chapter is here to help us shape the way we think about ourselves and shape the way we think about God. God isn't pleased with heartless religious activity. Abiathar was still sacrificing still reading the law, still doing priestly duties, while his heart didn't love God's king. God doesn't want cold, dead religious activity. He will settle for nothing less than a heart set aflame. You need to stop going through the motions and stop thinking you are okay with God because you can speak some religious jargon. You can run from the sovereign while hearing him preached on Sunday. You can give money to church while not giving your heart to the king. While I'm making sacrifices. Okay, Abiathar. I don't know of a busier person in this chapter than Abiathar. Your busyness is meaningless when the soul isn't captured by love for the king. You can fool some people, you can fool yourself, but you cannot fool the king. He reads you like an open book. Abiathar's doing religious sacrifices go to the same hell as Adonijah's doing random sexual encounters. One heart runs irreligiously away from the king, the other heart runs religiously away from the king. Both hearts despise the king. One just does it while practicing religious activity. God isn't impressed with your morality, Abiathar. Morality, apart from the king, still leads to eternal damnation. Once Solomon came to the throne, he had to decide what to do with those in chapter 1 who plotted against his throne, the conspirators. I want to help the people in the back. They are looking for a sound. One of your phones is making a sound. <laughs> If you could just check that and, and quiet it, that would help them. All right, plotter number one. Adonijah, the half-brother. Plotter number two, Abiathar, the priest. Plotter number three, Joab, the five-star general. Look at verse 28. When the news came to Joab, for Joab had supported Adonijah, although he had not supported Absalom, Joab fled to the tent of the Lord and caught hold of the horns of the altar. Solomon now starts to deal carefully yet decisively with the men his father had mentioned. Joab conspired to side against David and for Adonijah. That plot failed and now he grabs the horns of the altar and holds on for dear life. As far as he was concerned, his only hope for survival rested in going to the tab. He flew to the tabernacle David had erected in Jerusalem for the Ark of the Covenant. Grabbing horns on the altar was a practice that developed. If you killed someone, it was an accidental death and not intentional homicide. You could go to the horns for mercy. Involuntary manslaughter, not intentional murder. This practice was for 
unintentional crimes, but Joab did his crimes intentionally. Joab thinks, Solomon will not execute me in the tabernacle. I mean, surely he's not going to kill me in the church pew. Verse 29. And when it was told King Solomon, Joab has fled to the tent of the Lord, and behold, he is beside the altar, Solomon sent Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, saying, Go strike him down. The executioner's order comes in. David says, kill him. This is divine retribution, judicial punishment, repaying blood for blood. Verse 30. So Benaiah came to the tent of the Lord and said, the king commands, come out. But Joab said, no, I will die here. Then Benaiah brought the king word again, saying, Thus said Joab, and thus he answered me. Joab was right. There is a reluctance to kill him where he was. We don't want to get blood on the church carpet. The king's order, come out. Joab's response, I'll just die in here. Verse 31. The king replied to him, Do as he has said, striking him down, Strike him down and bury him, and thus take away from me and from my father's house the guilt for the blood that Joab shed without cause. This is a judicial killing, the death penalty. I personally think the death penalty is reaffirmed in the New Testament. Solomon is concerned with guilt by association. Joab's two murders left a stain, a sin stain. Solomon's motive is to remove blood guilt from the dynasty. Kill him and bury him. Absolve us of his murders. Verse 32. The Lord will bring back his bloody deeds on his own head. Because without the knowledge of my father David, he attacked and killed with the sword two men more righteous and better than himself. Abner, the son of Ner, commander of the army of Israel, and Amasa, the son of Jether, commander of the army of Judah. So shall their blood come back on the head of Joab and on the head of his descendants forever. But for David and for his descendants and for his house and for his throne, there shall be peace from the Lord forevermore. Then Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, went up, struck him down, put him to, and put him to death. And he was buried in his own house in the wilderness. The king put Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, over the army in place of Joab. And the king put Zadok the priest in the place of Abiathar. Peace can be costly. The coalition of three, Adonijah, Abiathar, and Joab, are finally removed. Three leaders removed. Political, religious, military. He eliminates the enemies of God's kingdom. Which leads us to this application. You can, like Joab, possess a false repentance for your sin. You can, like Joab, possess a false repentance for your sin. There is Joab grabbing the horns of repentance. He's in the Old Testament church. He's repenting. He's saying, I'm sorry. But it's a faux sorry. It's a false repentance. He's sorry because he got caught. Joab always refused to repent of his violent heart and abuse of power. You do not repent and keep the same violent heart and the same desire to abuse power. You have not repented of a sin you are still committing. Joab may have felt guilt, but never guilt for his sin. The altar where he was holding the horns, the altar is where he should have found forgiveness. But he came to the altar bringing no genuine repentance. There was, where there is no genuine repentance, there is no forgiveness of sins. God said in Amos, I'll cut off the horns of the altar. My wife and children were telling me about this verse. The day is coming when, when there is no more time for repentance. It'll be too late. Those of you that are non-Christians, 
I am not a raw, raw, emotional evangelist grabbing you by the lapel and telling you to become a Christian. I do want to grab you by the ears and tell you that you can find forgiveness for your sin in Christ. Your fake repentance, your faux sorries make God vomit. It's time to submit to the Lordship of Christ. I can't make you see your sin as an assault on a holy God. But the Holy Spirit can. And if you're seeing that right now, it's because He is showing it to you. Repent and believe on King Jesus Christ. Stop fighting against this King. Stop throwing your allegiances to other kings. Come to God's King and bow down with true repentance. Once Solomon came to the throne, he had to decide what to do with those who in chapter 1 plotted against his throne, the conspirators, and those his father told to kill. Plotter number one, Adonijah, the half-brother. Plotter number two, Abiathar, the priest. Plotter number three, Joab, the five-star general. Plotter number four, Shimei, the rock-thrower. Verse 36, Then the king sent and summoned Shimei and said to him, Build yourself a house in Jerusalem and dwell there. And do not go out from there to any place whatever. For on the day you go out and cross the brook Kidron, know for certain that you shall die. Your blood shall be on your own head. And Shimei said to the king, What you say is good. As my lord the king has said, so will your servant do. So Shimei lived in Jerusalem many days. This is the Shimei who threw dirt and rocks and curses at David as he fled from Jerusalem for his life. He, he bloodied the king. Any assault against the royal person was an assault on the kingdom of God. Solomon does not kill Shimei, but does put him under house arrest. He makes him stay in Jerusalem, quite restrictive at this time in history. Jerusalem, maybe 11 acres in total. Solomon is cutting him off from his estates in Behurim to prevent him from plotting with the fellow Benjaminites. He's forbidden to go anywhere outside of Jerusalem. If he disobeys the king, he knows the risk. David said, pressing circum circumstances should not make you forget about your obligations. Shimei responds, oh, I, uh, I understand completely. Solomon said, if you leave this city, you will have decreed your own death sentence. Notice Solomon's pen penalty for each of these four men. The first, death. The second, exile. The third, death. And the fourth, house arrest. It's not a one-size-fits-all approach. Solomon tailored the punishment. He tailored the penalties to each of the individuals. He wasn't being impulsive. He wasn't being reactionary. Verse 39. But it happened at the end of three years that two of Shimei's servants ran away to Achish, the son of Maha, king of Gath. And when it was told Shimei, behold, your servants are in Gath, Shimei arose and saddled a donkey and went to Gath to Achish to seek his servants. Shimei went and brought his servants from Gath. For three years, Shimei obeyed until two of his slaves ran away. He immediately springs into action he can't afford to lose that workforce. That's money running away. He leaves in violation of the asylum agreement. He violated the terms of his parole. He knew it was wrong, but he did it anyway. In direct disobedience to Solomon's order. Solomon knew if he gave him enough robe, Shimei would hang himself. He was under rigid surveillance. That's how they found out. Verse 41. And when Solomon was told that Shimei had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and returned, the king sent and summoned Shimei and said to him, Did I not make you swear by the Lord and solemnly warn you, saying, Know for certain that on the day you go out and go to any place, whatever, you shall die? And Solomon said to him, What you say is good, I will obey. Why then have you not kept your oath to the Lord, the commandment with which I commanded you? It's a, it's a brief but powerful speech. Verse 44. The king also said to Shimei, You know in your own heart 
all the harm that you did to David my father. So the Lord will bring back your harm on your own head. But King Solomon shall be blessed and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. I love that last line. God is not slow to engineer the fulfillment of those promises to David. In 2 Samuel 7, verse 46. Then the king commanded Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and he went out and struck him down, and he died. So the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. The kingdom is now securely in Solomon's grasp. The threats against it are neutralized. This text seems to take a positive view toward these killings. We may wince, but the text doesn't. The security of the kingdom requires the elimination of its enemies. The kingdom must be preserved from those attempting to destroy it. The actions Solomon had taken were fully justified from past injustices. This is Solomon taking steps necessary to secure the peace and prosperity of the kingdom. Solomon is obedient to David's wishes and he carries out the hit list. Which leads us to this application. You can, like Shimei, commit the crime of refusing to put the king first and instead put your wealth first. You can, like Shimei, commit the crime of refusing to put the king first and instead put your wealth first. Philip Ryken said the root of Shimei's crime was refusing to put the king first. He put his wealth first. Even if it means disobey the king, I will go after this money that's running away from me. Even if it means leaving the place God's king placed me, I will... If there is a chance, I gain some monetary profit from it. Beloved, don't leave where the king placed you in a breathless pursuit after money. Whatever amount of money you can make is not worth missing out on what God's king has for you in the gathering. Trust God's king more than you trust your drive to succeed. All four of these men refused to give up something for their kingdom. Adonijah refused to give up the Shunammite girl and his lust for power. Abiathar refused to give up loyalty to Adonijah. Joab refused to give up revenge. Shimei refused to give up his slaves. By implication, the work they could produce, the money they could provide. One final truth. Church, see the cruelty of human politics and the promises of God. See the cruelty of human politics and the promises of God. Gary Miller, who wrote one of my favorite preaching books entitled Saving Eutychus, Gary Miller sees David and Solomon in sin this entire chapter. He sees them as shrewd and calculated. I don't take that position, but a small minority of commentators do. Either way, I would just remind you that God always works his plan through a mixture of sinful political astuteness and faithfulness to God. One theologian says it like this, through the ups and downs of history, by the worthy and unworthy actions of humans, the Lord is accomplishing his purpose. Some see David's hit list as vengeance. Some see it as justice. God works his flawless plan through flawed people. R.C. Sproul sees David telling Solomon to kill Shimei as wrong because in the past David promised he wouldn't. And he sees David as keeping the letter of the promise but violated the heart of the promise. I'm okay if Sproul is right and I'm wrong on this. You know why? Because David was not supposed to be Christ. Christ was supposed to be Christ. And if Solomon sinned in any of this, that's okay. Because Solomon wasn't supposed to be Christ. Christ was supposed to be Christ. See the cruelty of human politics and the promises of God. Let's pray together. Father, your kingdom was never in doubt. It was predestined to succeed. This book provides many opportunities to rejoice over your sovereign faithfulness to your people.
we leave this chapter. We leave this chapter strengthened in the soul. Amen.